Both of our prayers that we're going to look at tonight, we're looking at two, are from the book of Ephesians. So uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 1 for a bit and Ephesians 3 for a bit. Um, Richard, you and I were just talking about having once journeyed together in Greece and Turkey. Yeah, and, and, and some of us, we've begun to talk about it. Some of us are going to go back next spring. Um, you, can, you, can make any, you can make an argument, but, but I, would, I would gently submit that um, with, with many incredible places in second place, Ephesus may be the most, the most spectacular, biblically relevant archaeological site that I've ever visited. And I've, I've been privileged to travel some in the Holy Land as well as around in, in Greece and Turkey. Ephesus has just been the object of so much hard work over so many years. Um, and there are so many stories to tell. Obviously, the centerpiece of Ephesian architecture for us is the incredible amphitheater um, carved into a mountainside. So you know that it's Greek era in origin. The Romans were too prideful to build their theaters carved into mountainsides. The Romans built freestanding buildings like the Colosseum in Rome. The Greeks were less, a little less prideful, ha ha, it's in some ways, and a little bit more, uh, <laughs> okay, walking here with a Martin Luther t-shirt that says, nailed it. That, that is an October 31st t-shirt right there. I'm, I, 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 I need a link. You know, just send me the link where you found that. All right. Um, now, complete train of thought lost. The, the Ephesian Amphitheater um, seats 25, 30,000 people and it is carved into a mountainside. It is the site of the Acts 19 riot. Happened right there. Uh, as recently as the 70s and 80s, it served as an outdoor concert venue. I know that you too did a concert there, I believe in the early 80s. Um, and there have been events since. So it's got a theatrical lighting system up at the back. You see these, these tall poles with theatrical lights that shined out of the stage, but the seating area with a little bit of restoration dates from before the, 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 uh, the BC era. So this is a spectacular, and then there's so many other things at the site. Incredible church there. In Paul's missionary travels, he spent more time at Ephesus than he did any other single place. He visited Ephesus multiple times. He built relationships. His three and a half year ministry in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, um, described in Acts, early Acts 19, led to a, 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 a wave of planting uh, church planters, our, our, our educating church planters. He basically had a seminary um, discipling up church planters who, uh, according to Luke in Acts, evangelized all of Asia. Now, that's a generalized statement, of course. There were lost people left in Asia, and there were probably minor gatherings of people in Asia that had not heard the gospel. But out of Ephesus, during the multi-year ministry of Paul, radiated a missionary church planting movement. So the church at Ephesus was an extraordinarily strategic church. Even as late as the letters to the seven churches, the church at Ephesus is commended for its incredible grasp on truth, scolded a bit because they had... They had not loved, they had not maintained love as they ought to have, which is interesting in light of, of these prayers that are a few decades earlier than the, the, the seven letters concurrent to Revelation are in the 8090s. And Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is probably from the, the late 50s, early 60s at latest. Um, it's also worth to note that, that Paul, uh, Paul gets messed with for a lot uh, Paul gets messed with a lot for his run-on sentences. And if you ever want to teach somebody sentence diagramming and you want to throw a, a, a master sentence at them, our first prayer we're going to look at is in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And 15 through 21, if you look down at your, your, your text of your scripture, 15 through 21 is one sentence. It's, it's, got, it's got causes within causes within causes. It nests so deep with its causal subordination, you almost have to diagram it to know what Paul is saying because he keeps saying, he keeps throwing in these subordinate ideas that you can drift a long way from. Now, wait a minute, where are his, where are his main points? What, what is the, and I'm going to walk you through that. 
I've entitled these two prayers, one in Ephesians 1 and one we'll look at it in a few minutes in Ephesians 3. I've entitled it that they would know and be strong. That they would know and be strong. Uh, Paul's theme, the unifying theme of these two prayers is, is the faith and love of the Ephesian church. We're going to see that theme pop up a couple of times in these prayers. Um, and and, and the, the faith that they have and the love that they have should, Paul prays, result in a, a strength and resolve to, to live out their faith effectively, really effectively. Um, now, God the Holy Spirit had Paul include these prayers in his letter to them and thus in our New Testament. Uh, I am grateful that Paul did not merely voice these prayers in his closet. I suspect he's writing to them based on what he has actually prayed for them. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that these were not mere literary device prayers, but were a reflection of his actual prayers. The first half of Ephesians 1 is, a, is, is an incredible affirmation of, of their, their security in Christ based on the God's eye view of their salvation. Um, I, I use the term God's eye view because I don't, want, I don't want anyone to ever have heartburn over such sort of transcendent and lofty ideas as, as God's providence in the salvation of people. There's a God's eye view that makes it very, very clear, and the view is accurate, that the God who is in charge of everything in the universe he created and utterly sovereign over everything in the universe he created is in fact utterly sovereign over everything in the universe he created. Because he's God, we're not. There is a man's eye view that everyone who will ever be born again must repent, turn from their sin and have faith in Jesus Christ. Those two statements are not in contradiction of one another. They don't, they don't war against one another. It is a matter of where your seat is in the bleachers. Uh, God is utterly sovereign. And the best and purest affirmation and understanding of our eternal security, which we affirm, is, is to... Hmm, I want to say this. If the, if the truest expression, if the most true expression of our salvation experience is tied to our own decision making, then eternal security doesn't make as much sense as it should. Because I have, I have the capacity, and I'm, I'm speaking in ultimate terms here, I have the capacity to make a decision that affects my eternity, but once I make that decision, I lose that capacity to make that decision. I can't unmake it, which, which is, so I'm, I'm a bit more free in my, in my decision-making and my capacities before I'm born again than I am after I'm born again, which, which is odd. The, the, the scriptures over and over again, when affirming our security in Christ, use word pictures like we've seen in John that those people who are born again can be seen as a gift the Father has given the Son so that the Son can honor the Father by one day giving back 100% of that same gift. Does that mean that those people haven't had to repent and show faith? No, 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 no. No one is going to be in hell saying, I mean, pardon me, no one is going to be in heaven saying I was utterly uninterested in the things of God, but I got elected and now I'm here in spite of myself. There won't be a single person in heaven who will say that. Nor will there be a single person in hell saying, I, I desire to love Jesus with all my heart. I, I, I sought to repent and turn from my sin and follow Christ by faith. But, well, I wasn't elect, so here I am. There won't be any of those. There is a correspondence. I concede that there is great mystery. But the first half of Ephesians 1 is one of the lofty pinnacle expositions of the great doctrine of, of the security we have in Christ because our salvation, when viewed from heaven's perspective, is a sheer act of God. And he has saved us and he will keep those whom he saves. 
And I'm not even in the first half of Ephesians 1. But that sort of, those are the notes Paul has been playing as he comes to this magnificent prayer in the latter part of Ephesians 1. For this reason, Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, comma. Now let me stop right there. I'm, uh, I want to do so much grammar with this, but I gotta, this one has to get hit early. When we see this, for this reason, comma, in English, we are prone to want to look back to the previous sentences and go, well, where, where's the reason? If, if I were advising our ESV translators on punctuation, I would change the comma after for this reason from a comma to a colon. Because it's not for a reason he's already unfolded. It's for this reason right here. So it almost almost wants to be a colon rather than a comma. If you're a punctuation nerd for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Those that reason. <coughs> I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And that is one sentence. We get to breathe and verse 22 and, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, my overall title this evening is that they would know and be strong for this prayer. I would condense that title to that. They would know that they would know. Um, an outline. The first, the first is appreciation. I guess if, if this whole section is my Roman one, Roman one letter A is appreciation, verses 15 and 16. And of necessity, I'm going to break his sentence up a little bit because I can't just grab the whole thing. His appreciation for them, for this reason, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, is, is the first sort of um, independent clause in this marathon sentence. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks. Well, what reason? And, and, and you could argue, well, for these reasons, because he, he, he actually gives, gives two implies a third in the intervening words. For this reason. First, because I have heard. Now, he's going to commend them in a moment for their faith and their love. You can see it. It's in the text. But don't miss the fact Paul, Paul is writing this, as I recall, and I admit I didn't check this. I think he's writing this from Corinth, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly, I, I don't believe he's in Asia Minor when he writes back to the church at Ephesus. Which means he's across the Aegean Sea, down, the, down most of the length of the Greek peninsula, and then west from the Greek peninsula on the mainland, out onto the Peloponnesian Peninsula in the city of Corinth. And he says, I have heard. Now, there were believers traveling between and among these cities, to be sure. But, but the first thing for which he is expressing appreciation is their reputation. Their reputation. It is not a bad thing to have a good reputation. You ought never work on your reputation. Work on your character. Let your, let your repu if, if you are to have a good reputation, let your good reputation be an organic byproduct of your healthy function. Don't, don't work on the facade that is your reputation at the expense of working on the reality that is your reality, right? Uh, this church had a good reputation, but no one had ever sat down and said, let's, uh, let's up our game in the publicity department. Let's, let's love and let's exercise faith and let's let the fact that we do that be known. So their reputation. Second, their faith in the Lord. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh, the definitions of faith. The Bible even gives two or three different definitions of faith. Um, really, really simple. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that Hebrews is wrong. Yes, faith is the is the evidence of 
things not seen. To do a simpler digest version of faith. Faith is taking God at His word. Faith is taking God at His word. Believing what God has said. By the way, in our era, and I know I talk about the word faith crazies a lot, but I am continually reminded by little brief snatches of conversation with members of our church that there are, there are many people whom I love dearly who are a part of this body of Christ. And, 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 and one of the things a shepherd does is whack wolves on the head and pitch them over the cliff. And, and when someone comes up to me breathlessly quoting what they heard from um, Jesse Duplantis or... Joseph Prince, I want to whack that in the head. Um, faith that is taking, taking God's, hmm, believing what God has said cannot include presuming on outcomes on matters that God has not spoken. Much of what is taught the bulk of what is taught in the word faith movement, the new apostolic reformation movement, the name it, claim it movement. It's got lots of name tag. Is that that you, by the exercise of your faith, can affect outcomes that are in the hands of God such that if your faith is sufficient, God's got to work it out the way you want him to. That is not faith. God has not said whether the business deal you've worked on really, really hard for the last couple of weeks is going to work out or not. God has, I have faith that this deal is going to go through. You can have faith that, that this deal will land where the gracious hand of God wants it to land. You can have faith that it's not out of his control because it isn't. But you cannot have faith that your particular deal is going to go through. Why not? Think about our definition of faith. Why can you not have faith that this particular outcome is going to be achieved? Because you're presuming something that God hasn't said. Yeah. I, 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 there is no Philippians chapter dealing with the deal you're trying to make that can assure you that that deal is going to come to pass. And people, I had, we prayed, we did everything right, we started our business, we had faith that it was going to succeed, and two weeks later, or two years later, it folded up and was bankrupt. And spend the rest of their life bitter at God because they mislabeled aspiration or presumption and called it faith. Faith is taking God at his word and his word is his word, not your impressions and aspirations and hopes. That's really, really important because you can hang yourself out to dry in bitterness at God when things don't go as you wish they would. And you tell yourself, but we had, we had faith for a different outcome. And that outcome didn't happen. Does that make sense? The Ephesian church had faith. Their faith in the Lord Jesus. And their faith in the Lord Jesus was such that the echoes of its reality reached all the way across the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. So he commends them for their reputation, for their faith, and then for their love toward all the saints. They were a loving church. Now, again, by the time we get to the letter they receive in the book of Revelation, there, there, have, there have come to be some love issues that need to be addressed. But at this moment, they love one another and they love truth. So Paul expresses that appreciation and that appreciation shows up in his prayerful thanksgiving. Verse 16, because I have heard of these things, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I have so much to thank the Lord for in your, in, in, in the matter of you. 
I became convicted a couple of years back that, my, that the part of my prayer list that dealt with specific people and The NBC Constitution gives me six things I'm supposed to do. My, I have the most public and the hardest to modify job description in the whole church. Mine is the only one that's published in the... Uh, I guess if you ever want to change my job description, you have to amend the Constitution by a two-thirds or three-fourths majority, whatever it is here. But one out of six of those is prayer. So, I mean, I have the privilege of... I get to pray at work. I get to close my door and say, leave me alone for the next chunk of time, I'm going to be back at my desk praying, which is a great, great privilege. And I'm an inveterate organizer. Um, but I noticed that the, the part of my, my, prayer, my prayer list that dealt with people tended to be overwhelmingly petition. I know this friend's having this procedure done, and I know this friend is traveling under these circumstances, and I know this friend is carrying this burden for their family. And I had all these petitions, and I realized I didn't have a section of my prayer list that was just Thanksgiving regarding people. Do you? Do you ever set aside time? I know we, we y'all are, are Wednesday night church-going McGregorites. You're probably prayer, prayers. Have you, have you considered, and if you haven't, would you? Consider carving out a chunk of your, however you organize your prayer, and I hope you do. We get frustrated that God isn't answering our prayer, and then we catch our, at least I, I began to be very organized in my approach to prayer as a very young man when I went through a season of frustration that God wasn't answering my prayer, and an older brother who was discipling me confronted me saying, talk to me about 20 things you've prayed for in the last six months and how the outcome has been before you talk to me about your, your frustration with God. I couldn't think of 20 things I had prayed for. I knew I'd been praying. I'd been praying a lot, but I couldn't think of 20 things. And he said, oh, you might want to consider writing some stuff down so that you'll know, you know, with your defective fallen memory. At any rate, here Paul says, I, I pray thanking God for you. Yeah, if somebody's got a sprained ankle, I'll pray for that. And if somebody's facing a heart procedure on Friday, I'll pray for that. But I also pray thanking God because I've heard you guys have a lot of faith and you love each other well. And I'm thankful for that. So his appreciation, second part of this first prayer, is his aspiration. His aspiration, his hope for them. I do not cease, verse 16 again, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, that is in order that. I remember you in my prayers in order that, and remember, he's building a run-on sentence here. So his, his appreciation feeds right into his hope for them. I pray this thanksgiving for you in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray in thanksgiving for your reputation and your faith and your love. And I pray in the hope that you will grow in both wisdom and revelation, that the eye of your heart, what a wonderful word picture, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Wisdom. And you know I'm bare for words and definitions. And my definitions are usually way simpler than the dictionary definitions, but they're just my simple mental hooks. And, and they're, they're not academically defensible, but they're pretty good everyday definitions. My everyday working definition of wisdom is the capacity to see the unfolding of my life as God sees it. To, to have the discipline to seek a God's eye view on what's happening to me because I am inevitably, literally self-centered. My field of view literally centers on me. I hear what I hear. I see what I see. I experience what I experience inside this. And there's just a whole lot in play all the time that isn't centered on me. And I think, I think the cultivation of the discipline of wisdom is the cultivation of the discipline to say, Lord, get me out of my worm's eye view up into the bird's eye view sometimes. I've used this illustration time and time again, but it was an epiphany for me. And so I've shared it. Again, 
uh, I have been blessed with the less than some, but more than others, for me, great privilege of, of traveling to some interesting places. And uh, I was, I, was the, I think maybe may the first time I was ever in uh, St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. The floor mosaics are really, really pretty in St. Mark's. They're quite old. The floor is very uneven. As in everything in Venice, it's built on bad ground. But these ripply floor, and I'm walking through, and I saw a bug. I don't know whether it was a time. I didn't stoop down, but maybe a little ant, but something about little ant size. Not sugar ant, but, you know, ant size. Was crawling across the mosaic. Just, and I watched him for a minute. And, I, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what his, if, if ants have an inner, if, if this little bug has an inner monologue, I wonder what he's saying to himself. So I stood there and I, I literally, I really start, I literally started muttering to myself, blue, 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 everything is blue, everything is blue. Oh, ravine, down, up, as he crosses a grout line. Red, oh, it's red now, okay, red, red, I like red. In some ways it's better than blue, in some ways it's worse, but red, 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 up, another seam, okay, oh, look, more red, 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 you know, as he crawls across the mosaic. Well, if you, if you ever have a chance to go to St. Mark's, you must, it's a narrow, terrible stairway, it's ancient, but you can go up to the balcony uh, of St. Mark's, and there's some wonderful displays up there and that sort of stuff. But when you look down in the view from the balcony, you can see the whole pattern of the floor. In fact, you have no idea what the artist was up to viewing it from the floor, even from six and a half feet up, six, three. Certainly the ant has no idea, but oh, the view from the balcony. I think wisdom is when we say, Lord, show me the view from the balcony so that I don't get bogged down in my little ant-like experiences. Something bigger has been designed than I am traversing across the face of it but I lack the capacity to see the big picture, but I don't lack the capacity to know that it's there and, and to live in awareness that something bigger than me is going on. I think that's wisdom. So he prays for them that they would have wisdom. And then revelation in the knowledge of him is not some new word of, from God. It's, it's their growth in the word of God. Now I know that the church of Ephesus is functioning within the apostolic era within the, the formative decades of the New Testament canon. But they had the Old Testament word of God. They had had three and a half years te teaching from the greatest Old Testament seminary professor who ever lived, apart from Christ himself, Paul. So Paul is talking about the word. When he talks about them growing in their understanding of revelation, he's talking about the word of God. One of our <coughs> lines in our, in our, in our church's newly constructed purpose statement is that we would desire to be a people who think biblically. And, and, and upstream of thinking biblically, we've got to be a people who are biblically literate. We've got to be a people who, who know how to navigate their Bibles. Not, not just the memorization of isolated verses, though one is all for scripture memorization, but, but grasping the, the narrative flow of the word of God. Knowing, knowing where certain ideas are addressed or illustrated. Um, loving the trees, but knowing the lay of the land in the forest as well. He's praying that their grasp on the word of God would be greater. In order that, now he's already, he's already sent us down one in order that. Now he sends us down into another in order that. I, I, I pray for you in order that you would grow in wisdom and revelation in order that. And again, three things. In order that you may know. Again, I, I pray thank, with thanksgiving for you in order that you would grow in wisdom and revelation, in order that, now in the middle of verse 18, that you may know, and he lists three things, the hope to which he has called you, that you'd have a real good grasp of the hope to which he has called you. 
If Ephesians 1 as a chapter is telling us anything, it's telling us of the importance of seeing this life in light of the next and the next in light of what Christ has done for us. If you were kind of drawing macro themes out of Ephesians 1. Live in light of the hope to which you are called. I have a good friend who lives on a dirt road. And well-intentioned people fill in the potholes on his dirt road from time to time. I hope they're well-intentioned. But most recently, they filled in the potholes with a bunch of discarded roof tiles, including a bunch of screws. And my, 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 my good friend is now at the end of his remote country dirt road where his house is with screwed up tires on two of his vehicles because somebody somewhere um, thought filling in potholes with a bunch of roofing screws was a good idea on the road. Right now, that's, that's rough. It's not a fun chapter when you come out your front door to where your cars are parked and a couple of them are sitting on the rims. I bet you've got stories like that where you went, okay, this day, this month, this year, yuck. This circumstance, not what I had in mind. I think about your daughter and her son. You know, we're, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the, the interview where we decided we would probably be moving forward with Nathan Bottomley as a church staff member. September, we'll get to the one-year anniversary of the congregation's vote to add Nathan and Faith to our staff team. And I know we don't pay Faith, and she doesn't have to report like an employee, but they're family. And they, and they have come to be family, and God has used this year. But come on, a year? The most pessimistic estimates we hired an immigration attorney. We've done everything you're supposed to do to let a Canadian national work for your church. We've dotted the I's. We've crossed the T's. We've jumped through the hoop. And it's coming up on a year and I'm frustrated. If I could know what government office to go camp in front of and shake my fist at the door of, I suppose I would. I don't like the way that's gone. But I am going to live forever in the literal presence of my king, in a spectacular, massive city from which he will explicitly rule the universe and commune with his people and wipe away every tear, fix, well, all of it. Meanwhile, flat tires, slow immigration processes, and stuff that grievously sometimes doesn't go the way we want it to. Paul says, you know, if you, if you, will, if you will grow in that wisdom and that revelation, you will have a, a symptom of that will be you won't forget the hope to which you're called. You'll live here and now in light of the eternally bigger picture. Not only the hope, but the riches that you that you would know the hope to which he has called you, comma. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That is, what has he aligned the saints to inherit of his? Um, I had a, a fun experience a couple. I think it's been a couple of years now. Gail and I redid all of our wills and related documents. The stack of paper is this thick. We sat with the attorney at the end of several meetings in the conference room at the law firm. And after he had gone over everything one more time, and it's, it's, the, whole, it's the whole thing, it's the medical stuff and the and, and, and our estate is not complicated. We're not complicated people, but there's just a lot. And at the end of it, the attorney said, well, do you understand all these documents? And I said, well, let me tell you from my perspective, the good news. If, if, if Gail is gone and I am left, these documents aren't in play. The, the execution of my ongoing affairs will be in my hands as it pretty well is now. 
If I go away and leave Gail, I said to the attorney, she's your mother and you'll be taking care of him. <laughs> because my elder law attorney is my son, Philip. And I don't have to, so there's no scenario where, and if we both go away, dude, here's your documents. You wrote them, you go do it. He's my attorney, he's my executor, and he's my oldest son. But here's the deal. There's, no, there's nobody in my will, no person in my will, who's inheriting anything if their last name's not Howard. I'm not mean and selfish, but that's generally the way inheritance is passed to people. I don't own enough that I you know, have to leave $10 million to my faithful butler and chauffeur. I don't have those. Um, inheritance implies relationship. When he says, I want you to get your inheritance, I want you to get the fact that you are a massive heir of the, of the massive wealth of a really, really wealthy king. Don't forget your calling. Don't forget your inheritance. And then there's a third thing in this list. And what is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's going to say in his prayer in, well, in a moment here, that that power which, which raised Jesus from the grave, that, that the magnitude of his omnipotence is aligned on behalf of his people. That's really good news. That's really good news. Now I know you'd think with all that at his disposal, he'd give me my way more often. Because I'm, I'm forced to contend with the, with the theological truth that he could give me my way 100% of the time. What I want is never beyond his ability. <laughs> But many of, many of us have raised or are raising children. And what do you call a child that gets his way all the time? What? Spoiled. spoiled. Usually spoiled is an adjective. What's the noun? A spoiled brat, right? All you need to do to raise a spoiled brat is let a child hear nothing but yes. Is our Redeemer who loves us, who is remaking us into his own image, is he interested in raising us to be spoiled brats? No, no. I don't like any one of his particular no's. When he, when he in the unfolding of circumstances, and when I'm praying for one outcome, and he unfolds circumstances such that I don't get my way at any given time, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. You don't either. But I'm glad, in the long view, There's no hot water in the faith building right now. We're renovating some of the bathrooms. And some of the bathrooms have cold water that works, but the hot water system is completely offline. As far as I know, I'm the only person who routinely showers in the morning in the faith building. Um, I, I, I have a couple of buddies that I work out with in the mornings, and I come to the faith building. I'm blessed to have a full bath in my office, and, and I have a shower back there. And so for the, the last couple of days, I've showered at work without hot water. Um, and I have nothing to complain about. I am abundantly blessed. But I was talking to a couple of the guys on the ops team that are kind of working with the renovation. And I said, you know, I'm not complaining. God forbid that I should complain. I am, I am ultimately very, very blessed. So I'm not complaining. Um, and, 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 and the cold water showers have been both, both nostalgic of some missionary travel over the years when I've you know, had the bucket hanging in the tree limb. And they've also been exercises in building my character. I won't mind when it's over. Right? Is it okay to tell God, I'm, I'm, I'm in a situation right now that I'm hearing no. Lord, will the hot water please be on tomorrow morning? I'm told that it probably won't be. But the power that raised Jesus from the dead is being used by God deliberately to work all things together for my good and for his glory. That is his hope for them, that they would get that. That yes, today your knee might hurt. And today the diagnosis might be bad. And today the, the business deal might fall apart. And today the tires might go flat. And today there might not be any hot water. 
But it's not because he's powerless. It is not ever because he's powerless. His appreciation, his aspiration, and then his, his affirmation. He affirms some things about the character of God as this particular prayer wraps up. That you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then halfway through 19 begins a section that goes down through verse 23 that basically is affirmations about God. According to the working of his great might, the first thing he affirms is the power of God. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the great power of God. Second, the great authority of Christ seated and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Power is nice. Authority moves the universe. I've, I've given this illustration. It is not original to me. It was uh, for me. It was uh, Adrian Rogers, under whose teaching I sat for some years, gave this easy, easy to see illustration of the difference between authority and power. And, and you've probably heard me, if you've been around my teaching for long, you've heard me share this illustration before, but I think it gets it for the difference between power and authority. Now it assumes some knowledge of American football, all right? So uh, in, a, in an American football game, uh, let's, let's take it all the way to the highest level to the NFL. Every given play, you have 22 monstrous human beings. You know, if, you ever, if you're watching TV and you say about a player, well, he, does, he doesn't look all that big, meet him in real life. And you could stand behind him in a hide and seek game and nobody's gonna find you if he's playing in the NFL. These guys are monsters. And there's this little ball. Well, it's not actually even a ball. It's this ovoid, this egg-shaped thing. And the object of the, 11 of those guys want that ball to go 12 feet. If they can reliably move that ball 12 feet on every attempt, they will score on every series because they'll always get a first down. 12 feet is four yards. And if they can go four, eight, 12, first down, four, eight, 12, first down, they can march the ball down the field at will. If they can get reliably, if they can get that little Ovid, 12 monstrous 300 pound plus human beings, a little ovoid ball, 12 feet, 11 monstrous human beings, absolutely committed, powerful, powerful men. Opposing them, however, are 11 approximately equally powerful men whose job it is to get the ball to go zero or even backward if they can pull it off. The ball is snapped. The play commences. And 22 monstrous human beings start bouncing off one another, running around one another and doing all manner of, and you don't want to be on the field. You don't want to be like standing on the line of scrimmage saying, when the ball gets snapped, or you're going to get pulverized from both sides because you have not devoted your life. You're not wearing the equipment. You're dead if you get caught between that kind of power. There is enormous power. And then the play ends. And a little guy, 5'9", 162 pounds soaking wet, in a black and white striped shirt, blows his little whistle walks over to where that ball is. Now remember, 22 very powerful men were doing everything they could to move that ball just a moment ago. He picks that ball up. They watch what they say to him. A moment ago on the line of scrimmage, Lord knows what they were saying to each other. <laughs> they don't say anything to him in peril of their career. He picks the ball up. If he has perceived that something is amiss, he can take that ball and walk unopposed 30 feet. Anybody want to hit me? And put it down where he wants to. And nobody hits him. Nobody touches him. Nobody messes with him. The football players have power. The official has authority. And authority trumps power Every time. Every time. Now, the illustration can be extended a little bit. If that guy in the black and white shirt just starts making up stuff, begins to act out of conformity with the authority over him, like if he makes up new rules, he picks up the ball and says, illegal sexual expression, 15 yards defense, 
then all the way up to, to the, to the uh, oversight refs in, in New York at the NFL offices, the phones are going to light up, and he'll be out very quickly. But as long as he's under authority, he will be in authority, and he can control the game. Jesus has the power of omnipotence and the authority to wield it. He's got both. And remember, he's moving for the glory of God and the good of his people. That's important. On, day, on a day that you're not getting your way, that's really, really important. So power, authority, eternity. He's put all things under his feet. Oh, pardon me. Uh, he has this authority not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Eternity. I won't belabor that too much. And then agency. He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of all things, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's very fashionable here in the 21st century to disdain the institutional church. Well, I'm a, I'm a devout follower of Jesus, but I don't want much to do with the institutional church. The institutional church, the visible church, is the bride of Christ. Church is the bride of Christ. You cannot live effectively as a New Testament Christian outside of connection to a local church. It can't be done. It's like buying a Toronto Blue Jays baseball T-shirt and running out in a meadow somewhere with a ball and a bat, hitting the ball to yourself and saying that you're a professional baseball player. Christianity is designed to be lived out in the fellowship of a church. Amen. It just is. Well, the church has got some screwed up people in it. I know. I, I gently submit I might know more about that than you do. In fact, I know that about you. <laughs> if you've been around long, you know it about me. Say whatever you want about me. It's probably true and worse. Be careful saying critical things about Gail in my hearing. She's the bride. And you are unwise to criticize the bride in the hearing of her strong husband. Ditto the church. Has she got her flaws? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is she imperfect? Oh, yeah. But she is his body. Okay. Well, that's Roman numeral one here at 730. Roman numeral two. <laughs> I will. The next one is shorter and I'll, I'll, I'll go a little faster. Oh, 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 wrong. Where did I put it? I don't often teach for my electronic gadgets because they don't behave as well as legal pads, but I got started prepping on the electronic gadget, and so I stayed with it. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. I said my title is that they would know and be strong. The first prayer is about things that he hopes they would know, and the second prayer centers on ways in which he hopes they will be strong. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. It also begins with for this reason, and it's another case where the for this reason follows. So think, think colon, not comma. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Colon, and here it comes. Uh, the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Okay, so he has to say something about God. But then the colon, that according to the riches, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. So, two major parts. of There's actually three major parts of this prayer. The first is, he prays that they would be strengthened. Three specific ways expressed in three parallel prepositional phrases, if you want to be grammatical. That they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in their inner being. That they would be strong with power through His Spirit in their inner life. If we were carrying refrigerators up flights of stairs. And it was our job to get 20 refrigerators up the stairs over there and we're not allowed to use the elevator. It wouldn't take long for this room full of people 
to figure out who you might want on, on the opposite corner of a refrigerator or on the pushing the dolly with you from the top while you handle it from the bottom or whatever it is. We would sort ourselves out fairly quickly in terms of who's got lifting capacity to help with hauling refrigerators up stairways and who perhaps ought not be standing too close while others move refrigerators up stairways. He's not here saying, I want you to be able to lift refrigerators up stairways. He's not talking about fleeting external capacity. It's a good thing if you want to be physically strong on the outside. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what he's talking about here when he talks about strength. It is strength in the inner life. How resilient are you in the face of adversity? How opportunistic are you in the, in the face of opportunity to share your faith? How strong are you internally? How resolved are you internally? He wants them to be strong. Not only does he pray for their strength, but he wants that so that, again, another of his subordinations that these paragraph blocks are full of, he wants them to be strong so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Two, there are two things, uh, two results. First, the abiding presence of Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the other one is that you would have strong roots in love. And we'll come back to that one. But, but now dealing with abiding presence of Christ through faith, that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit, notice here he says Christ may dwell in your hearts. If we were chopping it in a fine detailed sense, we know that it is God, the Holy Spirit that indwells our hearts. But part of the doctrine of the Trinity is that you get intra-Trinitarian sloppiness throughout the New Testament. And I didn't just say God has said things sloppily. God has said things exactly as he intended to. Sometimes we get this fine distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then we get Jesus describing things he is going to do. I will do this when he's talking about something that God the Holy Spirit. I, lo, I am with you always to the end of the earth is a classic example. He says that right before he ascends. Well, he is with them always in the person of God the Holy Spirit. So the triune God will... will and I use the word sloppily. That's not the right word. Maybe loosely. Will loosely interchange intra-Trinitarian roles to keep us reminded that we're dealing with one God. And so God the Father can say I when he's talking about God the Son. And God the Spirit can, can say I when he's talking about God the Father and the Son and stuff. And if you ever finally figure all that out and come up with, you know, people try to say what the Trinity is like. I love metaphors and word pictures. They help me understand things. The problem with the Trinity is there is no metaphor. There is no word picture. It is the central, unique reality of the universe. The triune God that rules sovereign from the center of it is not reproducible. And there's nothing in his creation that emulates well, it's like water. It can be ice, steam, or, or liquid water. That's a heresy called modalism that says that God appears sometimes as this and appears in a different mode sometimes as this and appears as that's That's not how the Trinity works. If water were simultaneously all at the same time, steam, ice, and water, you'd be getting close, but you go, well, that's not the way that works, and your head explodes. The Trinity is bigger than your brain. At any rate, the abiding presence of Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. Cultivate an awareness of Christ in you. Cultivate an intimate awareness and connection that you are a spirit-possessed being if you're a follower of, of Christ. And then also that having strong roots in love, that is, being rooted and grounded in love, you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth that you'd be able to comprehend who he is and what he's up to. Not comprehensively, but out to the boundaries of what he has said about himself. That you would know his word. And by the way, that you would comprehend this with all the saints. One more time, you get this, this reference to the church. That your understandings would grow as corporate understandings. 
I, I love that I get to be a church member. In fact, I'm obligated to be a church member, and I don't just mean my name on a list. Um, I, I visited another church Sunday morning, something I very rarely do. Last Sunday, three, three, three days ago, four days ago, whatever that was, was my mother's 88th birthday. And a couple of months ago, she, she said, this is what I want for my birthday. I want, I want all three of you, my big brother, me, and my little brother, to come to our church and sit with me and dad in church. Since it's Sunday, it's my birthday, and I'm 88, and I get my way. <laughs> and if you've ever met my mom, the, the correct response is yes, ma'am. So fascinatingly, both my sons were here. Uh, if, you, if you noticed the, uh, the, the red-bearded guitarist on the other side of the platform, opposite where my son Philip usually plays, that was my other son, Kyle. So I had my, both my sons were on the platform at McGregor this Sunday. I was in church up in Lutz, north of Tampa, with my mom and dad. Um, kind of cool that I'm honoring my mom by being there, and my boys are honoring their mom by being here, uh, which makes me very, very happy. Um, I say all that to say I missed being here last Sunday. Not because I missed being on the platform. I just missed being here because I'm a part of this body of Christ. And on Sundays that I don't preach and I get to go to life group, I get to be a student of God's word and learn God's word as a part of this congregation growing in grace together. I treasure those Sundays. I, try, I don't obviously don't mind teaching, but boy, I love learning. And I can't stop being a student of God's word alongside you if I'm going to be effective as a growing Christian. You and I both know stories, the recent convention, the horrific report that came out about bad behavior across some of the leadership of our convention came out a couple weeks ago. And if you've not heard that story, don't bother with it, it's depressing. If you have heard it, sometimes, my grandmother's term was, it, was, was uh, too big for their britches. That, that, that guys who stop learning God's word and only are teachers begin to isolate themselves and weird things happen in their brain and in their spirit. If all you ever are is a highlighted, larger than life personage, personage on a platform wearing a microphone every time you ever come to church, bad things are going to happen to you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I've seen it happen in ways that make the papers and I've seen it happen in ways that it doesn't. It's, it's not the way the New Testament says lead a church, and it's not good. Some guys have long successful careers in that role. We have many retired pastors in our church that were solo senior pastors down their careers, and they faithfully served, and I praise God for them. But they were working in a bad design, and that bad design has bad tendencies. And you, and you, and you, and you, and me, and you all need to be growing together in our understanding of God's Word. And then you'd have not only the strength to comprehend, but the strength to, to really know God, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, it's fascinating to me that he, that he talks about um, that they would have the result of, of an abiding that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, faith and love in this prayer. I want you to grow in faith and love. What did he start the first prayer thanking God for? What about them? Their faith and love. He's not changed themes. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he offers a benediction. Now, benedictions in the New Testament can tend to sort of stand alone. Uh, probably second only to the last couple of verses of the book of Jude, which are probably the most famous literate, literary benediction in the, in the New Testament, the, now unto, the marvelous now unto him benediction at the end of the book of Jude. But this is probably the second most uh, prominently known benediction in the New Testament. As he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory 
in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That they would know who they are in Christ. The object of an eternal love that was fixed on them before they actually existed. And that they would walk in that in a confident faith and an authentic love that they would know. And that that, that knowing would make them strong and resolved in their um, walking out of the Christian life. Thank you.